we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. This may seem a bit weird, what do I remember about the FLQ crisis? Everything a six-year-old child would remember. Roadblocks, military checkpoints, the names, La Porte, Cross, Barassa, Choquette, Rose. something recently, something that may be instructive. By the by, this is our hundredth podcast. Happy birthday. Let's celebrate. Let's have some fun. seem a bit 
funny. This is who killed <laughs> Teresa. podcast uh it's um pretty unbelievable to me uh i did not think i was going to make it past 10 episodes let alone 100 i certainly didn't think i was going to last 100 episodes working uh, within the confines of the palette the color palette of quebec um almost exclusively nevertheless here we are um, we will continue for a little while, uh, at least at least three more that I know of. Um, anyway, this is part three of the October Crisis, our final chapter, and um, I I think of these things. I think about them a lot. I guess I guess we all do. Those of us who who grew up in Montreal in the late '60s and early '70s. I've told the story of receiving that that medal, that uh, Canada 150th Medal of Service. I I was honored to receive it from my friend, Senator Pierre Boisvenu, in the fall of 2018. That ceremony was held at the Black Watch Armory, just up uh, from Sherbrooke Street on blurry uh, behind the Place des Arts, and I doubt that it was lost on any of us that this was the same armory that the FLQ bombed on May 13th, 1963, so it's, it's always there somewhere in, in, in my mind when I visit Montreal, um, but to, to tell you the truth, growing up, we weren't really that aware of what was going on politically in the, in the fall of 1970. Uh, my father recently told me, and I, I never knew this, that um, at the time in the fall of 70, at the time of the October crisis, after Cross was kidnapped, and probably shortly after Laporte as well, both sets of grandparents had uh, contacted my parents. Um, we had recently moved from Ontario. I think we'd been in Quebec for five or six years. And they said, you know, you can always come home, uh, you know, until this blows over, come back to Ontario. N- nevertheless, despite that, you know, w- dire warning uh, advice. We were not really, as kids, uh, that aware of it in, in 1970. Teresa was turning 11. My brother was 10. I was five and a half. The truth is, that fall, we were really into this. Come on now and me, everybody, and hear us sing. 
The Partridge Family made its debut on CBC Montreal Channel 6 on Monday, September 21st, 1970 at 8 p.m. Five of us and mom working all day. We knew we could help her if our music would pay. Daddy got proven to sell our song and it really came together when mom sang. That's the original opening and I still to this day much prefer it to the Come On, Get Happy version that later replaced it. David Cassidy just sounds much, much bluesier uh, in that version. As kids, we we never really had much interest in the Brady Bunch. Um, Right out of the starting gate, we were a Partridge Family family because uh, for the most part, the Bradys were wholesome. The Partridges were irreverent and funny I went back recently and watched most of the first season. You can find it on Daily Motion. Fifty years later, it still holds up. Laurie is this wise and philosophical person. She's like an early feminist, always hanging out with, you know, the intellectuals at some SoCal university. Uh, Danny Bonaducci, t- to this day, is flat ass funny. His stuff with the manager Ruben Kincaid it still manages to to be comic genius. And uh, Keith David Cassidy, he may be the most remarkable cast member. He's possessed with this, you know, incredible talent um, uh, and good looks and, and, and still with all of that manages to have this great sense of humor. I think writers were pretty aware that Keith, because of everything going for him, can't ever win in the series. He never gets the girl. He never gets that big part in the Hollywood screen test. And he's always bested by Laurie and mainly by his nemesis, Danny. All of my problems are oh so small. All of my problems are so small. I said, The Partridge family, in, in many respects, was groundbreaking television, not only for the depiction uh, of Shirley Jones as a single mother, but for its willingness to address social issues of the day. One example is uh, in the first season, there's this episode called Soul Club, and it guest stars uh, Richard Pryor and Lou Gossett. Uh, Richard Pryor, you all know. Gossett, you will recall recently from HBO's Watchmen, he plays... Will Reeves, who it's revealed was once a Minutemen member, hooded justice. In the Soul Club episode, there's a mix-up that sends the Temptations to a gig in Arizona and the Partridges to a Motown club in Detroit. Now, just ignore the mental math of why the Partridge bus was driving for four days and they weren't know, you know, <laughs> didn't know where they were going. Um, anyway, at the at the conclusion of this episode, Danny is given a black beret and he's made an honorary member of the, quote, Afro-American Cultural Society. Now, now back up a bit. Soul Club premiered in January 1971. That means that the show was filmed in the summer of 1970 um, when the younger cast members were off from school. So Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were killed by law enforcement in in Chicago just six months prior to filming. In December, 
1969. So, so think of that context. In the summer of 1970, with this, with like revolution in the air, on the cusp of the FLQ crisis in, in Canada, in Quebec, Danny is made an honorary member of the Black Panthers. In the Soul Club episode, there's um, like um, one of those uh, glow light posters of Jimi Hendrix hanging in the uh, the office of Richard Pryor and Lou Gossett. And in a later season, in season two, that poster turns up again in Keith's bedroom back in California. Now, maybe... Uh, you know, it's just the set dresser, you know, reusing stuff. But I like to think of it as Richard Pryor's character gave it to Keith Partridge and he took it back to California. Of the FLQ's relationship to the Black Panthers, Kidnappy James Cross had this to say. The kidnappers claimed to be Marxist anarchists, but I could find no trace of deep intellectual thought of either of these movements. There was a certain amount of influence from the various movements of the 1960s, which swept the United States, such as the Black Panthers, but I do not think they had any strong intellectual connections. I wouldn't describe myself as a Partridge family fanatic. To, to be perfectly honest, we didn't much like the music back then, or, or we pretended that we didn't like it. Um, we would have re- referred to it in those days by the word sucky. And uh, anyway, Teresa was about to take us to new musical territory. The, the Who's Tommy, Pink Floyd, Janis Joplin... Uh, which is really unfortunate because I don't think David Cassidy much liked the music either. He he was a guy who really desperately, urgently wanted to rock out um, a la Joplin, um, Hendrix. Um, that was really his style. It was the, it was the studio and the industry that uh, pegged him, pigeonholed him into this kind of tiger beat uh, image, which he chafed at. Um, I own, like, two pieces of Partridge Family uh, memorabilia. I have one trading card. Uh, coincidentally, it's it's 
the card from the Soul Club episode. It has Danny on the front and the lyrics to Bandala on the back. And I own the Milton Bradley Partridge Family board game. At one time, we owned the second album up to date. Now, this brings us to an interesting bit of trivia. My original podcast idea four years ago was not a true crime version of Who Killed Teresa. Originally, I was going to do a podcast with my daughters called Board Game. The idea was that every week I'd introduce the current generation, uh, you know, weaned on a diet of Nintendo and PS4 to a traditional 70s parlor game like Clue or Masterpiece or The Game of Life. And the fun would be, the the fun, oh, what fun, would be figuring out this this generation, uh, figuring out um, how to play the game. Um, the fun for you, a listener, would be the added monotony of <laughs> of listening to my daughters play something that was entirely visual. Get it? Board game. Uh, <laughs> aren't, <laughs> aren't you glad I switched to true crime? <laughs> no, the... The idea for board game never survived beyond a pilot, but that pilot, um, it's never been aired, but it survives. And as it happens, um, the inaugural board game episode was, in fact, the Milton Bradley (laughs) Partridge family game. Uh, So... um, for kicks and, and giggles, here it is. Here it is. I'm going to give you an excerpt from Board Game. One more time. What is it called? Board Game. Well, it's not called Board Games. Hi, welcome to Board Games. I'm your host, Grace Allure, here with my co-hosts. We're, today we're playing the Partridge Family Game. It's a family of partridges. Oh, boy. That was my joke. Oh my gosh, you can be Mom, Lori, Danny, or Keith. I'm I want to be Keith. I'm Keith. No! No! Is there Dad? No, you can be Danny. There's no Dad in the picture. There's no Dad. Do you want to be Lori or Mom? I want to be Lori. I want to be Keith. Please be Keith. I'm Keith. Please, dear God. There's a video I made of some home movies. I'll post it up on the website. It's from the fall of 1970. Two birthday parties. The second one being my brother's 10th birthday. And uh, we look very much of the style under the influence of the Partridge family. Teresa's in this uh, Lori Partridge macrame poncho. Um, my behavior clearly, clearly influenced by uh, Danny Bonaducci in exuberance. My brother, not, not unlike Keith, especially his hair.
I bring this up because the 8mm movie was clearly shot in October 1970. That, that's the date on the Kodak box. Teresa's birthday, 1970. You can see those black and white posters we talked about in the last episode. Robert Kennedy, Pierre Trudeau. Here's the thing. Teresa's birthday is October 12th. So in that year, it fell on a Monday. The way my parents did it, you had your birthday party on whatever Saturday fell closest to your birthday. So October 10th. This whole movie was shot on the afternoon of Saturday, October 10th, 1970. The afternoon that Pierre Laporte was abducted from his front lawn while playing touch football with his nephew 20 miles away on Robitaille Street in St. Lambert. opening presents and eating birthday cake. That's what we were doing during the October crisis. Quebec couldn't achieve by violent means. They now sought through a political solution. Six years later, René Lévesque's fledgling Parti Québécois swept the Liberals from office, promising to take Quebec out of Canada through a province-wide referendum. But before the PQ victory there was one last gasp of Mayor John Drepo's run of success. The 1976 Montreal Summer Olympics. As early as 1966, even before the launch of Expo 67, 
Drapeau had gone on a wooing expedition to IOC delegate nations to secure the 1972 Summer Games. Montreal lost out to Munich, which may have been fortunate. Imagine how that had turned out if what befell the Olympic Village in Munich had unfolded in Montreal and at the Delorval Airport. In fact, as a result of the Black September Massacre in 72, uh, security at the Montreal Games four years later was ultra-tight. It was uh, all hands on decks with the federal, provincial, and local law enforcement agencies all pitching in. No one wanted a repeat of Munich, let alone a revisit of October 1970. Some of the players in my sister's story lended to this effort. Robert Bulak, the private detective hired by my father to locate Teresa, and I believe Leo Hamel, the small-town police chief from Lennoxville, both worked security detail for the 76 Summer Games. Even members of Quebec's uh, militia units, such as the Sherbrooke Hussars, joined the effort that summer. Things started as they always did with the Drapeau project, with the promise of greatness then quickly spiraled out of control into some measure of disaster. By the fall of 1975, Montreal Mayor Drapeau realized that the debt for the Olympics would surpass $600 million. So then uh, Robert Barassa and the province intervened uh, to ensure the project wouldn't be canceled and that construction would be completed on time. Several cost-cutting measures are taken, including the suspension of construction of the Olympic Stadium Tower and the retractable roof those would come uh, much, much later. Tickets went on sale in May 1975 exclusively at Eaton's department stores. And I well remember accompanying my father to downtown Eaton's, the branch on St. Catherine Street, to purchase our tickets. I don't know why he chose downtown. The Point Claire department store was certainly closer to us, but... Perhaps there was a better selection uh, downtown at the main branch. I just, I remember this exceptionally long line and uh, we came out of there with tickets for, um, I think, rowing. I know rowing the the decathlon. Yeah, yeah. We saw Bruce Jenner um, and a quarterfinal football match. We saw East Germany beat France for nothing. Now, this would have been either... uh, It was on a Saturday in May, so it was either Saturday the 10th or the 17th. So it may well have occurred the eve weekend before uh, Diane Deary and Mario Corbet were murdered 10 miles away across the St. Lawrence River in Longueuil on Tuesday, May 20th. Les athletes amateurs à l'entraînement. Leur but, les Jeux Olympiques 76. Vous les aidez quand vous achetez un billet de loterie olympique, car sur chaque billet vendu, 
la somme de 50 cents est versée au sport amateur de votre province. Depuis le premier tirage, It's often said that the Montreal Olympics are the reason there are lotteries in Canada. The history goes back further than that, and it's another drapeau innovation. In the spring of 1968, the mayor proposed a municipal lottery dubbed Voluntax to help pay for the swollen debt accrued for Expo 67. Montreal residents bought $2 tickets for a chance to win $10,000 in uh, prize money. That idea was so successful that it led to a provincial initiative, Lotto Quebec, which became the inspiration for all subsequent Canadian provincial lotteries. Then in 1974, with another Montreal world event facing yet another cash shortfall, the Canadian federal government also, and again on the hook for Montreal's financial missteps, looked to the lottery model. The Fed sold uh, $10 tickets this time across the country for the chance to win a $1 million tax-free jackpot, the biggest lottery payout in the world at that time. And uh, with the lottery, they thereby raised uh, $15 million dollars for the Montreal Olympic Games. Where can you win a million cash tax-free? Olympic Lottery Canada. There are three prizes of $1 million Now, since we are sort of weaving a tapestry uh, with past episodes, uh, past cold cases, it um, the mention of uh, Margaret Coleman uh, last time and Diane uh, Diary, Mario Corbet this, uh, this time, um, it, it does. Uh, uh, it is worth mentioning um, that in the summer of '76, uh, the, um, the the duo uh, Jocelyn Baudouin and René Lassard cut. The, the intention was to cut short their vagabondage tour of a lac Saint Jean uh, be, because they had tickets to the Montreal Olympics and they wanted to come back and see that in July. Um, they never made it. Uh, Baudouin's body was found um, uh, 20 miles outside of Montreal, south uh, east, not far from, again, the hideout of the um, uh, the, uh, the the cell that included uh, the Rose brothers from uh, the October crisis, albeit it, not forcing a connection there. The, the, the roses that the, the cell members were long in prison by that point. Um, difference between seventy and seventy-six. But as I say, um, thematically, um, since we're talking about the Olympics, it does uh, no harm to mention that the Baudouin and Lessard's destination that summer was the Olympic Games in Montreal. Not to be outdone by the spending frenzy, the Montreal police also got into the act. Uh, Montreal MUC police spent what was then a whopping $48,000 on a mobile command unit (laughs) that within a year was being described as a white elephant. In the spring of 1976, the Police Security Council ordered, and you always had this oversight board buying things for the police. They couldn't do it themselves because they couldn't be (laughs) 
trusted to be responsible, but the police security council was no better. So they order what for all purposes was a mobile home from camp wagon limited, a company outside Quebec city that specialized in building ambulances, but had no experience in police security vehicles. And according to a camp wagon official, Everything was rushed and top secret. We had no idea what the mobile home was to be used for, except that it played a part in Olympic security. Normally, a job like this would take six months, not two. The Security Council employee who contacted us insisted that only a Quebec company would get the contract. The mobile command unit... In, you know the punchline, ended up being built in Owen Sound, Ontario, <laughs> birthplace of Canadian painter Tom Thompson. In the end, the mobile command vehicle only ever saw 30 days of service before being scrapped and auctioned off. By the time uh, technicians installed 1,500 pounds of equipment, <laughs> the truck was too heavy and bounced like a rocking chair when driven down the road. And you tried so hard to get there. And you tried so hard to get there. The, the venues for the Olympics were scattered across the city. The, the main campus was located in Montreal's East End at Sherbrooke Street and Pinneuf. This is where the stadium was constructed, location of the cycling velodrome, athletes' village, uh, Olympic pool with boxing and wrestling, hosted at the nearby Maurice Richard Arena. Other venues included the canals um, from Expo and uh, Man in His World, which were... uh, repurposed for rowing, uh, the Montreal Form uh, for gymnastics and basketball, site of the Richard Riot, uh, the Paul Sauvé Arena for volleyball, where many a separatist rally was uh, held. You are never far from home. And that was like quiet, and we were left with like hate. So smashed what was left to be smashed. I'm zero the hero and my head has floated away in the sky down the right. And now this spaceship heading for me. There was an arts component to the summer games. Or at least that was the plan. Corridor was intended to be this grand street fair stretching eight kilometers along Sherbrooke Street from downtown Montreal to the site of the Olympic Stadium, filled with 
$400,000 worth of municipal and provincially commissioned art installations, musicians, performance artists. Mayor Drapeau couldn't have cared less. On the eve of the Olympic Games, he did an evening car tour of the project and found it decadent. In a move on par with the worst artistic repressions of the Soviet and Nazi eras, Drapeau ordered the installation destroyed. So on the night of July 13th, 1976, municipal workers supervised by the Montreal police ripped down the works of some of the city's best-known artists and had it all carted to the junk heap. Writing in the Village Voice, Annette Kuhn called it the Rape of Sherbrooke, an orgy of municipally sponsored vandalism. Despite his even-tempered, milk-toast appearance, Drapeau was a bit of a puritanical hothead. He was once described by an opponent as a combination of Walt Disney and Al Capone. And it's worth remembering that his rise to success in the early 50s was largely backed by conservative nationalist uh, Premier Maurice Duplessis. Uh, Drapeau ordered the partial clear-cutting of the park at the top of Mount Royal because he had heard stories of homosexual encounters in the woods. Both Expo 67 and the Olympics gave way to slum clearance initiatives and urban renewal. He loved skyscrapers and shopping malls. He was not above advocating for highways and boulevards, running through residential neighborhoods simply because he disliked the local representative. Drapeau would have felt perfectly at home in uh, Robert Moses's uh, urban world and completely at odds with Jane Jacobs' uh, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Corridor would have presented to Drapeau None too subtle reminders that not all of his great civic endeavors were appreciated. Among the artworks deemed, uh, quote, ugly by Monsieur Le Maire was Melvin Charney's Les Maisons de la Rue Sherbrooke, which consisted of a scaffolded facade of Victorian homes erected in front of a vacant lot. <laughs> um, a, a, another artwork was simply a giant cross, similar to the one that's uh, currently on top of Mount Royal, laying on its side, suggesting that the, the cross was in need of a, of a rest. Jean Drapeau eventually and finally would receive his comeuppance, Three months after the closing ceremonies, René Lévesque's Parti Québécois swept into power, assuming control of the Quebec provincial government and 
they immediately launch a full-scale public inquiry into the Olympics and Montreal's municipal uh, administration, despite, despite the fact that two years earlier there had already been a Montreal construction inquiry. You'll, uh, you'll recall some of this from last summer's podcast, Downward Spiral, the uh, La Fermatics and the Poitras Commission. There's more details in that broadcast. Um, and in it, we talk about the Malouf Commission, who looked at the billion-dollar-plus cost overruns for the Olympics. And, and despite everything, Drapeau managing to survive and win the 1978 election. The Parti Québécois later passed a law forcing Montreal taxpayers to shoulder $200 million of Olympic debt. Drapeau had once famously stated that the Olympics can no more lose money than a man can have a baby. To this day, the the Montreal Olympic Stadium is none too affectionately referred to as the Big O or Big O-O-W-E, translation meaning uh, the amount of um, money the public had to ultimately shill out for the event. The the $1.5 billion price tag for the Olympic Games was finally laid to rest 30 years later when the last debt payment um, for the stadium was made in 2006, although Montrealers have long memories um, and it still bites. Jean Drapeau would survive as mayor for another decade. He lost the election uh, finally in 1986 and left office largely in disgrace in um, interviews and speeches uh, that election year, Drapeau characterized his opponent, uh, Jean Doré, as a communist and a separatist. Reacting to this and in reference to Duplessis once blaming the Trois-Rivières uh, bridge collapse on communist operatives, uh, Paul-André Como uh, writing in Le Devoir, said, uh, one has the impression of returning 30 or 35 years into the past to the era when, to explain why a bridge collapsed, one dreamed up a sober plot led by agents from the East. The reign of René Lévesque and his Parti Québécois was short-lived. By 1980, it appeared Pierre Trudeau's tenure as Prime Minister of Canada seemed seemed to be over. Lévesque's old rival had lost to Joe Clark in the election of 1979. But then, the Conservatives were breathlessly swept from office in a vote of non-confidence. I know. <laughs> the action thrill of the summer. <laughs> it's like, hold on to your seats. It's Canadian politics. Anyway, with this with this abrupt change in fortune, the the liberals were 
were left leaderless and they asked Trudeau to come back and lead the party. At the same time, René Levesque unwisely hastened his Quebec independence referendum. Uh, the province-wide question on Quebec separation took place on Tuesday, May 20th, 1980, but the campaigning had begun months before, right in the midst of Trudeau's federal election to power. So Levesque's uh, hope for an independent Quebec was doomed from the start, and the question failed by a vote of 60% against separation and 40% in favor. Levesque's final defeat would come in 1981 in the Ottawa chapter known as the Knight of the Long Knives, but that's a story that we'll need to wait for another day. That's a hell of a long way to go um, for three parts um, from the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, up to 76 uh, to come all the way back around and eventually talk about murder. Um, and I script these episodes, but I'm going to go off book at this point. I'm not going to script this because I figure if... if uh, if, if you've gone to the trouble to listen to this, you you are owed something special, um, an explanation, because you put in the time. Um, so I'll, I'll share some thoughts and maybe say more than I should. Um, but y- you got to, I really think you got to put it in context of, of everything that was going on. So... So why do we get to the cusp, to the precipice of 76? Because next comes 77 and 78. And we all fucking know what happened then. Um, 1976, the most murders on record uh, in, in, uh, on the island of Montreal in Quebec. 212 unsolved murders. Um, I've, I've said that before. Um, and I think a lot of it, uh, but, but before you start going off on a wild ass tangent as, as a lot of people lately are in Quebec, they've got serial killer fever, uh, all this programming. And it's, it's one of the reasons I've, I've shut my pie hole on the subject because before you get there, you got to ask why, how did we be, how did we get to that place? And I think a lot of the answers are in what we've been discussing in the last three episodes. Um, look at the manpower that was wrapped up in the late 60s and early 70s in playing cops and robbers and chasing the FLQ. And then, and after they caught, were caught in the 70s, you know, the trial went on. So all that paperwork, all that due diligence that needed to be done by... Uh, law enforcement and then and then you got to look at the political leaders uh as much as you may 
uh, from opposite ends of the spectrum admire uh, a Levesque or vice versa, a, a Trudeau, um, and have Trudeau mania with these posters, and but not really understanding, um, you know, that they were both points of view of the same problem. These guys were so high-minded. Um, do you really think the the average person in Quebec gave a, a rat's ass about their Levesque and Trudeau's idealistic aspirations um, and what it meant to be a Canadian and what it meant to be Quebecois when people were just trying to find a job. And they, they, they were less interested in practical matters. And I think when you have leadership at that level, um, taking your, your eye off the ball of um, what is very practical and fundamental for the people in Quebec, you start to have a lot of unsolved murders and a lot of your extremely vulnerable population suffer. So you have all these unsolved murders um, in 76 and the situation is no better in 77. You can talk about the boogeyman, you know, you can talk about the the monster on on in the plateau and uh, you know on the main in seventy seven and who was the boogeyman but but what gave rise to the boogeyman? Um, and it's it pretty much that everybody had their attention all of their time and energy were absorbed, you know, up here at this level that they stopped looking down here. That's the problem. Um, the main monster is, is the candy man is slender man. It's just, it's just another myth. Um, and, and I don't think people are looking closely enough at this or, or with a measured uh, thoughtful consideration of it. I mean, I heard one guy express to me who um, won't embarrass them because it's, it's, it's embarrassing to say it, to suggest that, um, you know, he's sort of on it. He kind of mentioned, um, you know, the quiet revolution, but, but then jumped a step and said it was really the miniskirt that led to and, and promiscuous behavior. I'm not kidding. That led to all these women disappearing and, and getting getting murdered. Uh, and God knows we don't need to be going there again. I don't think. I'm somewhat dancing around this right now for reasons I think if you've been listening are, that are fairly obvious I, at this point there's there's only so much I, I can say um, incidentally I, I think um, um, 
You know, the Parti Quebecois uh, justice minister, Marc-André Bedard, was possibly one of the province's best justice uh, ministers from from 76 to 84. He just inherited a really, really bad hand. Um, in fact, all of um, Lavec's cabinet were, were actually really, really good, really efficient at their jobs. They just inherited a, a fucking mess from the liberals. Um, didn't quite get a chance to establish themselves and got overly branded with this separatist issue, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of partially my point is um, everything got everything got cloaked in nationalism and separatism and s- these isms, federalism, and uh, the people who suffered, uh, the ones who were sacrificed, the ghosts who were long gone, um, the Priors, the Dachyons, the Blaise. Um, don't fault me because I'm just going... I'm freestyling now, so we don't get the Francine de Silva's, the Catherine Hawks, etc., etc., etc. Got short justice, got short shafted. Uh, anyway, in you know, in thinking of this, and I think I told you I found this 1977 calendar of my sister's, and uh, um, what happened to Teresa could have easily, easily have happened to her a year earlier. In, in in the spring of 77, you know, she had her stamp all over downtown Montreal. I mean, she was at all those places, right? She's, she's, at, the, she's at the old Munich um, like a month after uh, Jocelyn Hool disappears from the old Munich. She's at the Windsor. She's hanging out late on Crescent Street. Um, 77, she saw both concerts... Um, that were held that summer at the Olympic Stadium, the uh, Pink Floyd Animals concert, uh, in, I think in July, and then in August, uh, the the other big Olympic Stadium concert, uh, uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. So, but for the the grace of God, she might have been taken earlier uh, than she was. You know, Montreal is still largely um, recognizable and familiar to me in a way that Toronto isn't. Toronto, I have a hard time seeing it for what it was. Uh, but Montreal... Um, um, and the next time you go there, you know, I think you're going to have a new appreciation for it. Uh, 
on your typical vacation, you're going to go, you're going to hang out in old Montreal, you know, you're going to spend most of your time down there, which is really, really, you know, kind of touristy and commercial, and that's all right. But if you're down there, you know, on the wharf, you're going to, you're going to look across the St. Lawrence and you're going to see that geodome, the American pavilion of Expo 67, and you're going to have like this kind of appreciation for it. You're going to see the Jacques Cartier Bridge, um, you know, spanning across the St. Lawrence, and it's going to be maybe just a little more special to you. Um, if you get a chance to go out east to to Pineuf and, Sh- and Sherbrooke, which you might because there's a beautiful botanical gardens there, and, and by chance you might decide to just kind of, you know, meander around the neighborhood, and if you turn a corner, you know, you might happen upon the... Uh, Maurice Richard Arena, and there's this bronze, I think it's bronze, statue out front of the rocket, Rocket Richard, and I'll take your breath away. Guarantee it. Now, there was, there was one time I was doing some work, and uh, I had to take the metro, I forget, to an East End station, and I got off the metro, and I was walking down the street, and I turned around this corner, um, and, and there to the east was the Olympic Stadium, you know, with the tower which eventually did get constructed, which was Drapeau's wish. And that took my breath away. I just, I remember, I kind of went, because there was, you know, it's vast and beautiful. and uh, Yeah. City means a lot to me. Um... Briefly, uh, as we go out, if, if you like the podcast, please rate it, share it with a friend, you know, retweet it, whatever. I'm on Twitter at JusticeGuy, at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y, or the uh, podcast proper on Twitter is at Teresa Lower, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. There's a Facebook page, it's just called uh, Teresa Lower, the podcast, and as always, um, there's a website, TheresaLore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E, .com. A lot of good uh, visual materials for today's episode that I'll post. Um, you know, I don't do this often, but I, I have to. Um, I, I appreciate very much everyone who listens. Uh, means a lot to me, and particularly people who... Somebody contacted me and said, I didn't want to contact you because I didn't bother you. Mr. Allure. And I still find it hard that anyone <laughs> calls me Mr. Allure because, um, for myself, particularly when um, I'm living in this world uh, discussing this stuff. I'm still 13 or 14 years old. Uh, so please call me John. But um, there's a guy named Daniel uh, who has, has listened to every single podcast. Um, I think he does it during work. And he recommended this music to me. Uh, he, he said to me, um, I'm sure because you like prog rock, you know the Quebec band uh, Vauvoisin. Vauvoisin, which means, um, it's a terrific name for a band. It means our, or, or your neighbors, Vauvoisin. Um, and, I, and I didn't know them at all. The, the, the one album wonder um, flamed out in a flash of uh, uh, glory the the band 
you know, <laughs> sowed the seeds of their own destruction. Not only did they call their debut uh, album, um, I think it's called Holocaust in Montreal. Um, the cover um, is a replication of the tabloid Hello Police. It's just <laughs> classic. I'll post it. Um, anyway, Daniel uh, recommended uh, Vauvoisin to me, and, and I just absolutely uh, love them. Um, I love finding new music, uh, stuff I've never heard before. Um, and this is definitely I think 1970s, early 70s Prague, which, uh, you know, that's my game. That's my sweet spot. So thanks, uh, Daniel. Um, that's it. Uh, this has been Who Killed Teresa? It's our 100th uh, episode. Great, great, great. Three cheers and a tiger for us. Yeah, anyway, have yourselves a great, great day. Des nuages couvrant la plage Ça te...
The air we breathe, the water we drink, the soil that grows food for our families. These basic elements are essential to healthy, happy lives. America's corn growers think so too. Across the country, they're pitching in every day and doing the work to produce food and fuel that is healthy in a sustainable way. Go to ncga.com to learn more about how corn farmers grow a more sustainable future for us all. That's ncga.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks.